Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. If this were the final week of your life, what would your Monday look like? Would it be a grand marathon bucket list venture? Or would you just kind of sit back and keep your same old, same old routine? Our Lenten worship series, One Week That Changed the World, follows the final week of Jesus' ministry and life. And while you think he purposed to rush around Jerusalem circling the wagons, maybe it was just sandwiches, fig trees, and a field trip to the temple. Here's what scripture relates to us about probably his Monday from Mark 11, 12 to 21. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree that he had cursed, the disciples noticed that it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day, and he exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Unstated expectations. If we're really honest with ourselves, one of the things that we will have to admit is that in our relationships with other people, be those intimate, close relationships or the relationships of just the individual that you might be working next to, all of our relationships have a certain amount of expectations. Unfortunately, a lot of our relationships, those expectations are unstated. We assume them, and we assume that the other person knows what our expectations are, but they're rarely stated. And what happens is, is we become offended when someone doesn't meet those unstated expectations. So if someone treats you a certain way, or someone neglects to do something, you may feel personally offended because they did something to you. They didn't fulfill your expectations. 
So we become angry. And our brain has ways of dealing with that. When we have these expectations that go unmet and we feel that somehow we have been wronged by another individual, our brain, depending upon the past experiences that we have had, our brain figures out and even subconsciously will communicate, this is how you respond. This is how you respect yourself and protect yourself against that individual. Unstated expectations. It happens all the time. You call a family member, you call a friend, you leave them a message, they don't reply. The expectation is that they will reply. And when they don't, all of that just naturally kicks in. But what happens when we have expectations around God? How many of us have actually stopped and thought about that? What expectations do I have toward God? What do I want from God? And not only that, but flip it the other way and ask yourself, what does God expect from you? The reality is we probably have these expectations and we just don't think about them that often. And when God is said to act in a certain way or someone says something about God or something happens in our life that doesn't align with what we expect to receive from God, it creates the same dynamics that take place in our interpersonal relationships with each other. The challenge, though, is sometimes the expectations we have of God and God toward us create difficulties in how we live with each other. A perfect example of this was seen at the time when Jesus walked here on this earth in the first century. Perfect example of it. At that time, when it came to what the people saw God expecting of them, what it is God wanted from them, you found that answer in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of the Judeo world at that time. Not only because it was the, the center of as far as the politics, but it was also the center as far as religion. And at that time in the first century, politics and religion were very closely wed together because the Roman power at that time and the religious leaders had to interact with each other on a regular basis. They were the power brokers of Jerusalem. But that is where everyone found their sense of what it was that God expected from them, what God wanted from them, and what they in turn could expect from God. One of the greatest things they, people can share with us at, from that time, as you read in the New Testament, and it comes out of the Old Testament too, is that people expected a sense 
of safety and security coming from God. God ultimately was seen as being in control of everything. God is the one who gave order to chaos. God is the one who was in control of nature. God was the one who would have you be able to and protect you when things were tough. So if there was a lack of rain, you prayed to God. When there was a threat from a foreign entity, you prayed to God. And in some ways, we do the same thing. Look at the prayers that, if you flip through social media, people are praying for Ukraine. Somehow they believe that God will intervene either directly to stop the war or to give support and protection to those who are the victims of that war. There's somehow, our prayers are based upon this idea that we expect God to keep us safe. And what happens when those expectations are not met? What happens when a young boy below the age of eight dies of a brain aneurysm within 24 hours? When our expectations are not met, that creates this problem for us. But in the first century, the majority of people believed that it was because of the temple, that's where God was seen to dwell, that's how you had access to God. They believed that as long as they were loyal to God, that God would protect them, that God would bring order and control in their lives. And that gave them a great sense of well-being. In the midst of uncertainty, it was God who they believed would give certainty. So what did God want in return? Well, the two demands of God are really quite simple. Number one, God required sacrifices. Now, when we hear the word sacrifice, the majority of us begin to think about that somehow God has to see an animal die so that God can forgive us. That idea is really new. Because when you go back, the majority of time when the word sacrificed is used, it referred to two elements. Number one, gifts. Number two, meals. So in your relationship with each other, that's the two factors that would keep your relationship with another human being when you lived in that first century environment alive. You would give gifts and you would share a meal. Well, that ties in perfectly to sacrifices. In the agricultural world, you gave what was considered your first fruits. That first cutting. You gave a portion of that to God. That was a gift. That was a way of thanking God for meet God having met God's expectations of making certain that you would have a crop. That was a thank you to God. Now, the second gift was one of a meal. And so when you went and you offered a sacrifice to God, you were offering God a meal. What was amazing is, is that you would give God your meal, and in return, God would give you part of it back. 
So how did God eat the meal? Well, the blood was poured out on the altar. And then the meat was cooked. Sometimes only the priest got to eat of it. Other times, you got a portion back. But this idea of what God expected from humanity was first and foremost sacrifice, gifts, and a sharing of a meal. The second thing that God expected was that you would be loyal just to God. There would be no other gods. You would worship no other deities, Roman, Greek, before that, Persian, Babylonian, Canaanite gods. None of those were allowed. What God had required of you was fidelity, one-on-one -on -one loyalty to God. And then last of all, that God required obedience. Obedience to God's law. What's amazing, again, is you go to the Old Testament and you read some of these laws, they're really vague. I mean, just think about the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. All it says is, don't work. Well, you know what? That allows a lot of room for interpretation. It was only later on that individuals came along and said, you know, we can't give free freedom, that much freedom to human beings. We need to, to spell it out for them. And so they came up with actual, what was called the Haggadah, the rules to take these vague laws and make them very specific. But what was alive at during that period of time was that these laws were vague enough that the religious leaders figured out that there was a lot of wiggle room in those laws. That they could take those laws and they could still be loyal to God and at the same time that they could use them to their advantage. And so the religious leaders at that time begin to move and shape those laws in such a way and interpret them in such a way that it gave them that freedom to actually begin to flourish, to gain more power, to gain more money. And then in the process, they actually begin to oppress other human beings. And they still felt really good about themselves. They could go to the temple and felt that they had met God's expectations. And if they met God's expectations, then they could expect that God would fulfill his expectations for them. It is this problem that Jesus became aware of. The majority of time that Jesus, while he was here on this earth, the majority of that time was not spent in the big cities. It was in the rural surrounding areas. And Jesus was able to see the impact of how the religious leaders lived their lives and how they met God's expectations, how it trickled down and affect the quality of the life of those individuals in the rural areas. He saw them lose their land. He saw them go further and further into debt. He saw them have expectations placed upon them of what God wanted for them that was different than anyone else. 
Jesus was the witness of that. And in that last week, Jesus decided to go and address the issue head on in Jerusalem. Because that's the hub, that's the center. And what's amazing is on this Monday of that last week of Jesus' life, Jesus has an experience. And the writer of the Gospel of Mark creates this in such a way that the easiest way to explain the format that he uses in telling this story is that imagery of a sandwich. Now, the majority of sandwiches that I am accustomed to have two pieces of bread, one for each side. By the way, how do you know which way is up or down on a sandwich? Think about it. So you have two pieces, and then you put something in between. Now it could be simple as that rich quality sandwich of peanut butter and jelly. Or it can become more elaborate and you put all sorts of things in between those two pieces. But it's those two pieces that hold together the sandwich. Well, the writer of the Gospel of Mark has a way of telling stories in the format of a sandwich. There's one piece of bread, then there's another piece of bread, and then there's everything in between. So everything in between is supposed to be understood by looking at the two pieces of bread. If you look at the two pieces of bread first, you'll understand what's in the middle. And that's exactly how Jesus, how the gospel writer of Mark describes what happens to Jesus on this last Monday of his life. And he gives us clues. In Mark chapter 11, verse 12, the next morning, it was Sunday, Palm Sunday, that he enters Jerusalem. The next morning, verse 12 says, verse, you skip down at verse 20, the next morning. That alone tells you, watch out for that sandwich. These two pieces of bread. And what happens is on the first piece of bread, the story says that Jesus was hungry. I did a, a search on that Greek word, hungry. And in the Gospel of Mark, this is the only time that it appears. This is so insightful. It's supposed to kind of all of a sudden wake you up. When they give you information that is more than is required, the writer is saying, hey, pay attention to this. So immediately when, the, when you hear Jesus was hungry, you expect something. And it says that Jesus was hungry, and in the distance he saw a fig tree. And he went to the fig tree expecting to find figs. But he saw no figs, and he was disappointed to the point where he decided to say the following. Listen to what it says. May no one ever eat your, from your tree again. Now, one of the reasons why many individuals don't take this story literally is it goes completely against what the majority of people assume to be about Jesus. Jesus does not speak ill to the majority of individuals other than the religious leaders. But here, you, if you take it literally, you have Jesus getting upset at a fig tree for just doing what a fig tree does. 
In fact, the writer of the Gospel of Mark explains that, oh, by the way, you shouldn't have expected figs because it was the wrong time of year. And so immediately, all of a sudden, as a reader, you realize we probably shouldn't be taking this literally. And that sets you up in that sandwich to begin to understand what's going on in the middle. So on the one side, all of a sudden, Jesus says he's hungry, he goes to the fig tree. By now, Jesus should know that you don't expect fig trees, that time, I mean fruit from that tree during this time of year. But Jesus becomes upset, and he curses the fig tree. That's the beginning of that day. The next day, as they're making their way back to Jerusalem, they pass that same fig tree. Listen to what it says. Peter remembers what Jesus had said, and he says to Jesus, Look, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. That's the second half of the sandwich. The first side says Jesus curses the tree. The second part of the sandwich says that Jesus recognizes that his curse came true, but the tree withered up and it died. Why? Because it did not provide fruit. That is how we are supposed to understand what happens in the middle. And what is it that happens in the middle? what we typically call the cleansing of the sanctuary, of the temple. When Jesus goes in, you've heard the story, perhaps, where Jesus goes in, he throws tables over, he chases people out of the temple, stops them from walking through, carrying loads of stuff, which, by the way, was normal, everyday activity that would occur in the temple. The other thing that we have to remember is the temple, 35 acres. That's the size of the temple. So what you have to understand is what the writer is describing is just probably what Jesus has done in this small little corner of the temple. And many people feel that Jesus was cleansing the temple at that time. But maybe instead, if we looked at that sandwich, we realized what Jesus was really doing was the same thing that happened to that fig tree. Jesus had watched and seen what was happening. He understood how the religious leaders were using the temple as a way of oppressing other human beings. And Jesus says, that is not what God expects from you. And so just as Jesus cursed that tree and it withered up and died, symbolically the writer is telling us that when Jesus went in there, he did the exact same thing. He basically said, this has got to stop. You have such a sense of false security that you believe that as long as you show up in the temple, you give your offerings, you give your sacrifices, you're obedient to God. As long as you do all that, then you're good with God. 
So the expectations they had of what God required of them, and in turn what they expected from God, was what was creating the problem. And Jesus says, it needs to stop. That's what got him killed. The status quo, according to Jesus, could no longer stay the way it was. And when you miss with the status quo, people don't like it. We become comfortable, sometimes comfortable even in our discomfort, because that's all we know. And Jesus has the courage to say, what you expect from God and what you in turn believe that God expects of you has got to change because you're continuing to hurt other people. So this comes to the point of the sermon where I'm supposed to move from talking about the first century to the 21st century. And I thought a lot about how I could apply this to our lives here in Phoenix, Arizona in the 21st century. And then I remember what one of my professors told me. He said, Tony, he said, the majority of ministers believe their church members are stupid. And I thought, why would you say that? Why would you think church members are, why would you think that we as ministers think our church members are stupid? And he says, because we always want to apply it to their lives. He says, why don't we believe that they're smart enough to apply it for themselves? I mean, think about that. How many people are here, right? There's no way I can apply this sermon to each and every one of you. What I do is more of a shotgun approach, right? I shoot out an application and I hope it hits someone. But ultimately, the question is, is how, does, how do you think this applies to your life? So I'm going to ask you two questions. If you have your cell phone, now is a great time to pull it out. Because you can type in on your notes these two questions. And if you don't have your cell phone, if you want to grab a piece of pen or a piece of paper, and write these down, because there's two questions that I would like you to reflect on this week. And that means you're going to have to be intentional. If you would, this is your homework assignment. Something that spiritually could make a difference for you. Here's the first question. What do you believe... God, that you, let me back it up. What do you believe that you expect from God? What is it that you expect from God? Think about that. Your answer is probably tied into your view of God. If you're a theist and you believe that God is active in your life, 
then what you expect God to do for you is going to be different from the person who's a deist, someone who believes that God started out and created our world or the environment that the world would be take form, and then God stepped back. You see, your view of God is going to impact that answer, but that question is significant for you to, to think about. What does God expect? I mean, what do you expect from God? Do you expect God to protect you? Do you expect God to give you a sense of security? Do you expect God someday to give you eternal life? Or do you expect nothing? How often have you taken the time to really think about that? And here's my second question for you. What does God expect of you? Or what does God demand of you? Does God lay, lay any claims to your life? That answer will give you a lot of insight to what you believe about God and even what you believe about yourself. You see, a lot of our relationships are based upon unstated expectations. And I think the same thing happens in our relationship with God. Maybe now is the time to stop and really reflect upon what those expectations are. I can't give you the answer. And you don't have to take the time and find an answer. But I believe that if you take the time and reflect on this, it could make a difference in the quality of your life. You might find some really interesting things about yourself and about your God. That makes a difference in how you see yourself and in turn, how you treat other people. It's up to you. I, I, I honestly believe you're smart enough to figure this one out on your own. So I'm going to shut up and sit down. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at BeatitudesChurch.org backslash online dash giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.